Dr. Morgan here. Here is the second episode detailing my postpartum experience, this time talking all about breastfeeding and nutritional focus points. <sighs> the trials and tribulations of early breastfeeding. It's never been an easy start with my children, who have all been lip and tongue-tied. And in this episode, we discuss the theories as to the causes of oral ties, pacifiers for breastfed babies, pumping schedules, and reflux. Oh my. Then we discuss postpartum nutrition, how it's even more demanding than when you're pregnant, how to replete nutrients, what types of foods I am prioritizing, how to set up a meal train, and more. I hope you learn a lot. Now let's dive in. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother, with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be, from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep, through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere, so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. So we are here to talk about breastfeeding and postpartum nourishment and nutrition. This is a, a big topic because it's a lot of like the full-time job of really a postpartum woman is to eat and nourish herself and feed her baby if you choose to breastfeed. Uh, so let's just take it off. We've got a bunch of questions from Instagram, Dr. Morgan. And the first question is, why are oral ties more common now? And for those who don't know, can you just briefly talk about oral ties? I know we have a podcast episode on this. Oh, but... yeah. Let's put that in the show notes. Um, yeah. So this is something that has been a, a main topic for me in my sharing of what postpartum is like with Sunday because she is tied just like all the rest of my kids. And so in our mouths, it is normal to have this band of tissue that connects your lip to your base of your gums and the base of your tongue to the floor of your mouth. There are these like, there's multiple different, they're called frena or frenulum, fren whatever. Um, there's some on your cheeks. They're, they're just like, connective tissue points. And everybody has them and they're normal, but they can be too tight where they are not allowing the normal range of function for the lips and the tongue to move in the motion, kind of undulating motion that is a normal, good, healthy latch. And the reason this matters is because if the, if the baby's mouth cannot do the things that it needs to do with the nipple to get the milk out in an efficient way, it will cause the baby to maybe not be gaining weight as well the mother's milk over time can start to go away, quote unquote, because she's just not having as much output. Like in order to make milk, we need it there to be milk removal. Also it, the mouth will damage the nipple tissue in a lot of cases, or at least just cause pain. So there's a lot of different reasons here, but so all of our kids have been tied and the reason, you know, what, what, why are these happening more often? Cause it feels like everybody's talking about this. And if you have a baby right now, or if you've had a baby in the last couple of years, you've probably at least heard of this idea, or maybe you're experiencing it yourself. And there has been a sharp rise. I do think there's been a little bit of trend and a little bit of maybe earlier detection and a little bit of more, um, attempt at breastfeeding. Whereas like when we were kids in the eighties and early nineties, it was very, very common to give formula. I mean, starting in the sixties when formula first came out, you know, <clears throat> it was like a, a big against culture thing to breastfeed in the era of formula because it was like, they thought that it was better. So anyways, there's a lot of different reasons on that end, but then there certainly does seem to be something going on in our, maybe it's our, in our environment. Um, I think it has a, a little bit of a combination of events, but so 
my quick take is that I think it has something to do with folic acid, folate, and methylation because in utero, when we are developing, neural tube disorders, open neural tube disorders like spina bifida and cleft lips, we know are due to a lack of folate or folic acid. So what we ended up doing was putting folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate in everything, in breads and cereals and all sorts of different food in our processed food system because we wanted to avoid this when we figured it out. And it really did work in that sense because it really reduced the numbers of those open neural tube disorders. Now, on the flip side, we as Americans have so much toxicity all around us all the time, constantly, much more than a lot of other parts of the world. Um, because our FDA will allow things like atrazine, which have been illegal in Europe for many years. <laughs> we use atrazine as one of our main pesticides, or we allow certain things to happen and to come into our food system that uh, we shouldn't. And so we're constantly bombarded. And you talk about this a lot as part of your main pillar of you know what's happening with our infertility world. And it is mm -hmm. a huge deal. So what happens though, when we're constantly bombarded with toxins, it affects our DNA through something called epigenetics. And epigenetics are the way that the, the genes are turned on or off. You can think about your DNA as stagnant. Your DNA is there. It is what it is. But how it's expressing itself can change. So what's, mm -hmm. what parts of it are on or what parts of it are off will change the way that you have health outcomes or um, energy levels or all sorts of different stuff. So things that can cause epigenetic changes are like toxins. And so let's just keep going with this example. Okay. So I think that people are born in America generations and whatever our mothers and our grandmothers have been doing as well. And our genes are kind of dirty. This is the idea of Ben Lynch and his book, dirty genes. We'll put that in the um, yeah. show notes as well. And one of the things that must be affected by that, and this is my theory, at least I guess is the methylation of, you know, people have heard of MTHFR mutations this is this codes for an enzyme. It's called methyl tetrahydrofolate. <laughs> and, Reductase. Reductase. <laughs> and it has to do with the way that folate is processed in the body. And so going back to folate and folic acid, open neural tube are cleft lips, spina bifida, big open things. A too tight neural tube from too much folate or too much folic acid in the system would be these midline disorders, quote unquote midline disorders, which would be tongue and lip ties, sacral dimples, torticollis, persistent stork bites, um, really, really tight babies that have tight fascial pattern, tension patterns, and maybe they're in extension or they're in flexion all the time. And this is, it's like a constellation of symptoms that um, we're seeing patterns of. We don't really understand all that well, but so I think that it has to do a little bit with something with too much folate, folic acid, MTHFR mutations, a little bit of something in the environment, and then probably a little also bit of trend, overdiagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely with my kids, um, the release of, with the laser release is the game changer so that I can breastfeed because I would not be able to breastfeed without it. They wouldn't gain weight. I mean, I would be able to pump. I guess I could pump and give them a bottle, but I don't want to do that. I want to breastfeed. So we yeah. get them released and it works really well. And this is just a quick note on that. Um, there's also a lot of concern with folic acid itself. So the synthetic form, which is what's in a lot of conventional supplements, what's in our food system and people not being able to process that folic mm -hmm. acid, the synthetic form, and that causing a bunch of issues, which could be part of it. Probably not maybe as much with your situation. Yours might be more genetic um, because you guys aren't consuming a ton of like 
folic acid unless you eat processed, you know, cereals and things like that. Um, and so, and also just not taking too much folic acid or folate even like you mentioned. So like in needed's prenatal, you know, we talk about needed's prenatal a lot and we love it. Um, we were very conscious about putting the appropriate amount of methylated folate, not folic acid, which is a synthetic form. You don't want to take it all and really want to avoid in food as much as possible, especially if you have an MTHFR issue, but also not taking too much. So there's some prenatals out there that have well over 1.5 grams of folic acid, way too much. We do not need that much. And that's kind of one of the theories. It's not proven, but it is a hypothesis that is being tested and and explored. So you want to look for a prenatal that has enough methylfolate, but not too much. Somewhere between 500 and 900 micrograms is sort of like the range I recommend. Um, And so just being mindful of that, because even people have been told like, oh, you need folic acid for pregnancy. So people will just take a ton of it thinking that that's better. Yeah, it's not. So um, that we were very conscious of that when we were designing the needed prenatal of making sure we had enough folate, but not too much to mitigate some of these developmental issues. So that's just like a little plug I want to say about folic acid. But yeah, thank you for saying that because prenatal vitamins, that's kind of like the whole reason why we started taking them in the beginning was so that when preg- pregnant women were getting enough folic acid or folate <laughs> right. to prevent the spina bifida situation that was happening. And then it's just kind of gone off the rails. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So next question, nursing bra, do you use one? Do you like one? What's the deal? Yeah, I don't have a preferred brand necessarily. I just with nursing bras, you want to make sure that they're not too tight. Usually underwires are not part of the game with nursing bras. They're usually like a bralette, a softer something, because if it is too tight in the armpit area or in the band, it can block off your milk ducts and it can contribute to clogged ducts and mastitis and different things like that. So um, I have a couple, I have one that's, um, I don't know how to say this company actually, it's Juem. I, I wanted to get one that was organic. I wanted an organic cotton nursing bra and man, it was so much harder than you would expect. I ordered so many and sent them back. This is all during my pregnancy, but I did keep a Juem, Juem, Juem one. We'll and it's, it's good. I like it. It's it's good. I wish it was a little bit wider in my rib cage. My rib cage mm-hmm. expands significantly during all my pregnancies. and But then I have small breasts. So it's like the sizing doesn't match up. So yeah. anyways, and then I actually really love these free people ones, which I will put in the show notes as well. They're not nursing bras, but they are so stretchy and like very soft, truly very, very easy to nurse in. Now, if you have larger breasts, they're not supportive, like in any kind of way, but I'll put those down and it's really just going to be preference. Like there's the ones with the clips where you pull it down like that, or there's one that's shaped like a sports bra or like a little triangle kind of bralette and you just pull it down or you pull it up and it's just going to be totally preference for you. I am a leaky breastfeeder. So I have to have those pads in my bra at all times. Cause otherwise I would just be changing my clothes a million times a day. Mm-hmm. So I have to accommodate for something like that as well. And yeah, anyway, it's going to be totally a personal preference. Cool. Yeah. We'll put some of our favorites in the show notes. So breastfeeding body positioning to avoid back and neck pain. Yeah. So I'm not the best at this, but I should be. And it's good to remind myself even right now and talking about this, you might think oh, I'm just going to do this because it's only just a few minutes and you're like all hunched over and you don't have proper support. But you're doing that however many, 12 times a day or more sometimes, you know, and it does catch up to you. It will Mm -hmm. mess you up. It will 
create back and neck tension. Um, also, we have to be thinking about the way that our spine is shaped during pregnancy. You have a, it's called a lordosis in your back, which means that it's like a sway in your back because the belly is pulling forward and it's the way that our body counteracts that. And then immediately after birth, we're going into this hyper kyphotic is the name in our upper back where we're coming really rounded due to breastfeeding. And it's just a very dramatic spinal tension shape over a short period of time and it can cause problems. So we need to be cognizant of our um, positioning. And, you know, if you can lay down, if you can sideline nurse, that's a great one because it doesn't put any tension on your, on your back in that kind of a way or leaning back. Um, the laid back breastfeeding is, is most comfortable for me. So I basically get her latched. I have some pillows in my lap. I get her latched and then I just lean way back onto my, not all the way flat, onto some pillows though, so that she, her body is on her belly. Because like we talked about in part one with the tummy sleeping, when infants are on their bellies, even if they're nursing on their bellies, they are in a higher parasympathetic state, which rest, digest, digest. So if they're nursing, they need to be digesting, right? And they also get a really good deep latch in that position. So that's a good one because you as the mom are comfortable and the baby is comfortable. It just can be tricky to get that position down but yeah. keep trying, keep trying. Newborn I really liked, crazy. I really liked football hold. That worked really well. Oh, yeah. Because my daughter was really heavy and I had a C-section, so it was hard to put her across my lap. Um, and I would lay in our nursing chair and just kind of put her, like, prop up pillows and stuff and then have her in the football hold. If you guys don't know, just look it up on YouTube. And that was really comfortable for me because then your neck is just, like, looking forward. <laughs> yeah. And football hold is really good when you have larger breasts, too. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. And C-section, like you said. Yeah. So this is all going to depend on the way that your birth was and then the shape of your body because – yeah football hold is so hard for me because I have a really long torso, super small breasts. Yeah. It's like not worth it. It is so much work for me. Yeah. So it'll always change on you and your position and your baby. Yeah, totally. Okay. Best pacifiers for breastfed babies. Yeah. Hands down the ninny and I have a code and a link. So we'll put that again in the show notes. Leave <laughs> <laughs> me a long show notes. These show notes are going to be like a blog article. I feel like Yeah. Um, the ninny pacifier is the most breast like in its shape when you look at it it's inc incredibly soft so the silicone is very thin and very soft and it almost provides no sort of proprioceptive like feedback to the shape of it if the baby doesn't latch onto it properly so it's not like this hard bulb shape or sticking out shape that they can just like easily grab onto they have to use the latch dynamics hmm. that are proper for breastfeeding in order to even use it and so it's cool that way and it can be used as an oral motor tool like a like a literal rehab tool which is how i'm using it right now with her which is just a few minutes a day it takes me a long time to get her to get on it but then it's helping her latch um or if babies already have a really good latch and they can take it, then that's great too. But for some babies, it, it will be a little too tricky and it won't actually do what a pacifier is meant to do, which is like induce a sense of calm and soothing and parasympathetic. It'll It's actually like more work and it's hard for them. So you'll have to kind of be like watching that with your baby. But then if not that, um, or you need a different shape or something, the Dr. Brown's Happy Passy is a nicer, wider base than some. And then other recommended ones that I've heard from different lactation consultants would be the bibs, bulb shape one, not the orthodontic ones. And um, also the Avent one, 
which is just kind of like stick straight out because at least then the tongue has to cup underneath those shapes. And yeah. so at least it has to do that. And so there is a little bit of work that the baby has to do to put into it. The ones that are the worst are something flat and long and low, like the mam. Mm. Mam shape, not ideal. The orthodontic shape, not ideal. Orthodontic shape, meaning that it's like flat on the one side and then it has the bulb. Maybe, you know, at some point those might be more appropriate for your particular baby after they get teeth or whatever. But for a breastfed infant with no teeth, um, those flatter ones, they don't even have to lift their tongue very high. They can just rub their tongue on the bottom part of that. And that's not going to um, keep encouraging the motion that they need when they're breastfeeding. Oh, that's so good. I didn't even know there was a difference. I learned so much from you every day. <laughs> I think I use the Advent ones. I don't know. I can't remember, but they're I'm going like to get green. They're just they're oh, like a... maybe not. I had like a clear one. I don't know, but I'll, I'm going to get those other ones for our next baby. baby. Um, okay. So do you pump or use the Haka? So I, the last, I haven't pumped since Gage, <clears throat> which has been really nice. I use the Haka. I've just started doing it. Yesterday was the first day. So I'm like two and a half weeks preg or pregnant, um, postpartum. I don't like to use it earlier than that because I don't want to contribute to oversupply. This is going to be something that is not applicable to everybody. But if I am able though, because I'm so leaky that if I latch her on one side, especially first thing in the morning when I've had the most milk, because your prolactin is highest at like 4 a.m., most women will have the most milk of their day at that first morning feed, whatever time that takes place. And so that's a good time to pump either after you have you feed the baby or you can do the haka simultaneously when you're nursing. It's a little tricky because they it can pop off, it can spill, but you're just you get used to it of watching it. And I will attach it on my opposite side. And yeah. I'll collect like an ounce to sometimes a half an ounce to an ounce and a half, I would say. And then I just collect that. I keep it in a little bottle in my fridge until I get to like a three or four ounce level. And then I freeze that pack. Yeah. And I've been able to do that now where I can get to a level of like, say, 30 ounces that I have in the freezer. And that's really all you need because, yeah. because here, and this is why. If you're going to give your baby a bottle for a date night, for something, for work, whatever, you have to be pumping at the same time that that baby is getting the bottle or at least the same number of times of day so that your supply keeps up. So mm. you don't, there's no need for you to have more milk in your freezer, except for maybe an emergency situation, which nobody's ever like really, you know, thinking about that much because it's rare, thankfully, but um, you don't need more than just one bottle ahead. At any yeah. point, really. But so 30 or 40 ounces, most of the time I don't ever end up even using it because my yeah. last two girls haven't even ever taken a bottle. I, mm -hmm. I would put it in a cup once they could drink from a straw or something like that when they were older. But anyway, yeah. So I use the Hawkeye. I think it's great. And it's it allows me to just save up, you know, enough. And then that's kind of all that I need to do. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Do you think all first-time moms should schedule an IBCLC? Yeah. So IBCLC stands for International Board Certified Lactation Consultant and a hundred thousand percent. Yes. One thousand percent. Yes. One thousand percent. Yes. I can't say it enough. I mean, unless your sister is an IBCLC or you have tons of friends that are very knowledgeable that are going to come and they're going to help you immediately. It, it, why not? You know, I mean, the cost is a thing for sure, but just don't buy the $700 bassinet. Yeah. Don't buy the $4,000, you know, stroller car seat 
combination thing, whatever it is, I, mm-hmm. I save up for these post birth therapies if breastfeeding is important to you. Yeah. Um, because it does take work for most yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. I'll put the link for the IBCLC link in the show notes. Okay. Thoughts on eliminating foods to help with the baby's gas. Like if your baby's colicky or has gas. (sighs) Yeah. So no one wants to do this and it does have a time and place, but I think it's the, the first thing to do is understand the cause of your baby's gas and their colic. If the cause of their gas and their colic, like it is for me right now, is because of a crabby latch and they're swallowing air, you can reduce all the foods that you want. It's not going to fix the problem. The problem Mm -hmm. is the latch right now for me. If your baby has a perfect latch or you're doing like bottle feeding and then, you know, you're doing, you're burping properly or something and then there's still problems, looking into eliminating dairy is probably the first one that most babies have a problem with. Yeah. Milk and soy protein intolerance is uh, a thing unfortunately, but there's a lot of other symptoms usually that go along with that, like blood in the stool, um, having like a true allergy, you know, allergy or intolerance on the baby's side to something in your milk, in your diet is not all that common. Actually. We, I think that we think that it is way more common than it is. I would say eliminating dairy is number one. Gluten can be one. Eggs can be one. Um, yeah, soy, uh, but your lactation consultant can help you tease out what is actually the root cause of the problem and attacking that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything with natural medicine is all about finding the right diagnosis because people will be like, Oh, is this good for X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, it depends on if your, if your thing is caused by X, Y, Z or not. Exactly. It's like you could take all of the whatever for something and it won't do anything if that's not your problem. So getting a good diagnosis, which a lactation consultant can help you with is good. Okay. How to focus on full feeds and avoid a rigid schedule. Yeah. So I don't try to schedule anything with my breastfeeding with my kids because it's, I have found in my experience that it's pointless. I know a lot of people have different kinds of kids, different sorts of the way that their milk is or whatever. And so they, they can get them on a schedule. Um, but newborns, especially like, I, I just think you're going to make yourself crazy. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to full feed all the time. You you have no idea how much they're getting. Sometimes they're going to snack. Sometimes they want to nurse just for comfort. Sometimes they do get a full feed. You That's kind of like part of the magic of breastfeeding is that it makes you lean into that unknown space of just following the baby's cues and not being able to control everything, which I know is really hard for us. We want to be able to, and I get that. Um, but I don't even like attempt it because it's it would be it would cause me so much suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. What does breastfeeding look like in the early days? Yeah. So before your milk comes in, it's going to look like it can feel like you're feeding every 45 to hour and a half. And, or maybe it's a little bit longer because they take some kind of longer nap, but they're going to pretty much want to be anytime they're awake. So newborns sleep a lot, like, you know, 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day. They, anytime they're awake, they're going to want to be feeding and you pretty much have to do that. And it's not fun because maybe your nipples hurt. Maybe you have damage, whatever. And it also just feels like it never ends, but it will, once your milk comes in, it will become more, uh, like the gaps will become larger and you really need that feedback though, to your breast, to your body, to your brain that, Hey, there's a baby here. There's a baby here. There's a baby here. We need to be feeding this baby. Make the milk, make the milk, make the milk. It will draw your milk in faster the more frequently that you feed the baby 
and they are going to be happier because they're getting your colostrum. The colostrum is a limited time item that is so amazing for your baby to get. And so that is intense and hard. And then after your milk comes in, it's still intense and hard. It's just a little bit easier, I would say, because they do, they are fuller. They'll sleep a little longer. You do get a bigger break. Um, and it's just, I, I think it's just following the cues of your baby. They're awake and they seem like they're at all hungry. You put them to the breast. They're upset by something. You put them to the breast. Like, because again, it's not just for food. It's their yeah. main comfort. It's their main, everything that they want in the world <laughs> <laughs> to be able to suck. Yeah. And if, if you're in a situation like with the reflux thing I'm dealing with with Sunday right now, if you're in a situation where you know your baby's full and they still want to suck and you're like, I can't keep attaching you to the breast because you're going to get more milk and you're going to spit up more and you're going to be more refluxy. And that is something I, I experienced with her then pacifier because yeah. sucking is, is it's, it would be very mean for us to withhold the ability for them to suck. Yeah. Um, so they need to be able to suck on something. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, what, what day does the milk come in typically? And also this is like a common thing. I think people forget about, do you need to wake your, ch- your baby up to feed them? Cause if they're a sleepy baby, and you just let them sleep 10 hours stretches, you're going to lose your milk, right? Like talk about that real quick. Yes. So typically it takes three to five days for milk to come in. So your baby's born on Monday. You're not going to have milk till like starting maybe between Thursday and whatever that next Monday or something like that. I I don't know that I'm not doing the math right. But (laughs) my point is, is that it's going to take several days and that it is fully physiologically normal and expected for your baby to only get colostrum in that time. Do not let somebody tell you that they need milk, that they need formula. I have been in the room in a labor and delivery ward where a nurse told a two day postpartum woman that her baby was crying because she needed milk and she should just go to formula. And I wanted to slap her across the face and say, what do you mean she needs colostrum? Just what support her with breastfeeding her baby? Like what is going on? You know, but that was just her immediate stance was, oh, this baby is, is hungry. So let's give it for me. It's like, okay, well, if the baby's hungry, then breastfeed her. Yeah. Nurse her. And it's just, there's such a weird lapse in knowledge that we have there that like the baby, that a two day old baby is not primed or ready to continue to have milk anyway. That's not what their body is wanting or needing. They are wanting and needing colostrum. That is it. Anyway. So yeah, the general rule is that you need to be breastfeeding your baby at least, or yeah, at least every two hours Mm -hmm. throughout the 24 hour period until they regain birth weight. So except the first night of birth, the first night after birth, babies tend to be very tired and they will sometimes give the parents a longer stretch of maybe it's four hours, maybe it's six hours that you can take that. You can just follow your baby's lead. If they're going to sleep, they can sleep after the first night though. This is what a lot of lactation consultants say. You got to be waking your baby up every two to three hours to breastfeed all throughout the night until they've regained birth weight and your milk has come in strong. And after that, if they tend to be a good, you know, longer stretch sleeper, which is not very common, but it does happen sometimes. You can sort of allow them to do that. But I do think that it's like, let's, let's not let a, you know, one week old baby or 10 day old baby sleep for 10 hours. That's not normal. Their blood sugar is going to be tanking out. They have their little metabolisms are fast. So you, you know, you have to kind of figure this out for yourself. That would be very atypical. I guess it does happen sometimes. But the rule is that you need to be waking them, even if they're a sleepy baby, 
until they've regained and your your milk supply is in good and strong. And then you can kind of start to play around with longer stretches. Cool. Okay. I know you're about to breastfeed. How ironic, but let's talk about your nutrition. So what foods are you prioritizing um, yeah. while you are breastfeeding, taking care of yourself postpartum? So postpartum foods are traditionally warm in temperature, warming in spice content, meaning like if, if there's, if it's an appropriate meal to contain like ginger or turmeric or, um, you know, maybe like a little bit of actual spice, like a little cayenne or even like onions and garlic are considered warming foods, um, in some instances at least. And then they're like very proteinaceous, so very high in protein and carbs and fat. I mean, like mm-hmm. all the things. Really, we want a good – we want vegetables too, but really meat is, and animal-based foods are what is, again, found traditionally. And I always am talking about the traditional sort of healing and traditional ways that humans have done things because – it was what was done for a very, very long time successfully. So and what we humans are, alive. What we are doing right now does not keep humans alive. Yes, it is contributing to bad outcomes. And mm-hmm. we didn't have that when we were doing all these other things. And so um, that's why I kind of like base myself around that. But so soups, stews, chilies, bone, drinking bone broth, um, like meat, vegetable, kind of curry type dishes over rice, like very heavy, dense, warm, almost like pre-digested, meaning like, mm-hmm. you know, crock pot meals, like things that are like gushy, mushy, easy to chew and swallow, not like a salad and raw vegetables, yeah. not a smoothie. No, no, it's not that you can't drink a, one smoothie postpartum. It's not like you can't do that, but it's just, you don't want to be focusing on those kinds of foods. You should right. be focusing on the warming. So soups are like my I have eaten so much soup in the last. That's great. That's great. I'm so happy. happy for you. I know. I love it. It's the best. It's like, it makes me so happy. And soups are so easy to freeze and meal prep and, or chilies or stews. I mean, they're all within the same vein, you know? Yeah. Um, and then in terms of, I saw that there was a question on there about how many grams of protein per day for postpartum. You know, like in pregnancy, I talk about a lot that it, you're aiming for about 80 to 100 grams of protein. I would say that if anything, it increases during postpartum if you're breastfeeding. And even if you're not breastfeeding, still, we have to think about our recovery. And so for a period of time, at least, it should be 100 grams to 120, I would say. And Somewhere like that, I would say, would be where you want to stay. I did read somewhere recently that it said a postpartum woman should eat about 4,000 calories. Now, I know calories are not all that helpful because it's like, well, what are we eating, you know? But mm-hmm. my point is, is that you need to be eating far more than when you're pregnant. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to do that because now you have a newborn and it's difficult to do anything with a newborn or maybe you have other children. So this is where a meal train comes in. A meal train is the idea that your friends and family or community members even people who live from afar, they live in another state, they can contribute to the meal train via gift cards for meal delivery services like DoorDash yep. or Uber Eats so that you can get the food that you need. Because ideally what I recommend is people are eating four meals a day. Meals, not snacks. Mm-hmm. Four big servings of like a chili, a soup, a stew, as if it was a main meal. and. Yeah you know, that takes a lot of work. And so meal trains where people can come and they deliver you food for the first couple of weeks, but you can spread it out too, because it's like, 
maybe you get a lot of help in those first couple weeks and then it starts to peter out. You still need help. Um, that is like a game changer. You know, it's, it's so hard to do without that. But if you don't have that option, if that's really not something, then during your pregnancy for the last couple months or last several weeks of your pregnancy, you can be freezing meals that you make in your freezer, you know, or every time you make a super stew, you save off a couple portions and then you freeze it. And then you're going to have easy to like quick go to healthy nutrient dense foods to eat during your postpartum. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. One of the main things that I'm doing to support myself this postpartum is really focus on my postpartum nutrition, because although we know that we can't control sleep when we have a new little baby anymore, the one main pillar of pillar of health that we can control is what we put in our mouths and what we feed ourselves. So that includes nutritional supplements like the supplements from Needed. My very favorite prenatal on the market, and it is a postnatal as well. So that means it's a supplement that you take while you're postpartum and throughout your entire breastfeeding journey. So I recommend to my clients, patients, and friends to take the Needed prenatal multivitamin for at least the first nine months postpartum or the entire time that you're breastfeeding to help support you nutritionally, give you all of the vitamins and minerals that you need and keep you really feeling healthy and good during this entire intense time of your first year of motherhood. So go ahead and visit thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER to save 20% off of your first order. So again, that's thisisneeded.com using code HEALTHYMOTHER to save 20%. This is a big game-changing move for you as well as focusing on your postpartum nutrition so that you can feel really good, supported, present in your motherhood, and then just enjoy your new baby. Okay, now back to the show. So we already talked about meal prep, ideal grams of protein. Um, the next kind of question are supplements for postpartum recovery, kind of the best supplements. And one person asked, can you use needed stress relief postpartum? So let's dive into that. And I can speak to that too if you. Yeah. So I suggest people to take all your same prenatal supplements while you are postpartum and additional ones that you couldn't take while you were pregnant that you can take now that you're breastfeeding, like the needed stress support. You can't take that while you're pregnant, but you can while you're breastfeeding. And it's a lot of really effective, amazing adaptogenic herbs and nutrients that help with our stress response, help with our resiliency, help nourish our adrenal glands, our thyroid, our whole HPA access so that we can, you know, be supported in those times of like sleep deprivation, for instance, mm -hmm. and just the challenges that come with dealing with life with a newborn, a new baby or your other kids, etc. But I definitely think that people should be at least continuing your prenatal vitamin, your omegas. We yes. know that postpartum depression and anxiety, one of the, you know, treatments, but then also one of the risk factors is like a low omega status because it's, it, this is all brain support. Um, I also suggest to continue the probiotics. So the prenatal, the needed prenatal is what I'm taking. I'm taking my omegas, my probiotic. Um, I actually am starting the stress support this week. Um, I just had to order it and now it's here and I'm going to start taking it. I also have found, I forget who told me about this, but there is a company called Milk Moon Herbs and I will, we'll put this in the show notes. They make a postpartum herbal tonic that's like a syrup sort of, like an elderberry syrup, but it's all these different herbs that help support postpartum that I've been drinking that several times a day and I really, really like it. It tastes great and 
um, it will be a little bit redundant once I start taking the needed herbs too. It'll be, there's some overlap, but I think it's fine to take herbs. This is me being a doctor though. So I feel like I, it's fine, but herbs need to be dosed high and frequently in order to work properly. And then they're mm-hmm. be very effective, but in too low of doses or not enough, you know, then it's just not going to have as it's a negligible effect. Um, but yeah, so breastfeeding, you do still need to be kind of cognizant of what you're taking because your baby is going to be getting a little bit of whatever it is you take, but please do not just stop all of your supplementation cold Turkey when you, not because you're gonna have withdrawals, but because you need it, you need to support your body even more now. Yeah. More, (laughs) more. And a lot of people don't think about that. And it's so much harder. Like pregnancy, people are like, Oh, pregnancy is so hard. And for some people it is. And life with a newborn is arguably definitely busier and harder to prioritize your own nutrition. And so continuing your prenatal supplements is a huge, huge benefit to you. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say about that is I actually did a bunch of research for anyone who doesn't know. I helped design a lot of the needed products. And within that, I did a ton of research on postpartum depression. And actually, a big part of omega-3 support is the EPA. So the two big parts of omega-3s are DHA and EPA. And we talk a lot about DHA in pregnancy because that's the key omega that helps with baby's brain development. And that is and mom's development because her brain actually rearranges during pregnancy, which is so crazy (laughs) Um, because there's just a lot of evolutionary benefits to kind of breaking the brain down and building it back up in a different way. And the DHA helps mom and baby's brain. And that DHA is still very important postpartum. However, EPA is more of an anti-inflammatory omega-3. And there's so much research now that we know that depression in general is very inflammatory in its pathology and its uh, pathophysiology, meaning what causes it. And they're finding that that is true in postpartum depression in certain circumstances as well. And so having that EPA omega-3 on board can also help because of an inflammatory reduction perspective. So I just think that's really fascinating. So definitely making sure that you're getting enough for you and baby. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is the, um, having adequate protein. And again, this is like another plug for needed, which is their collagen protein. Oh my God. It's and, my favorite. It's so great because it has no flavor, which I love and you can put it in anything. So you can make little breastfeeding cookies and add collagen. You can add it to bone broth. You can add it to soups and stews or applesauce or whatever. Like you can add it to anything. And then you're just getting that extra protein, which is needed to heal but when you have a C-section and when you've given vaginal birth and it helps your blood sugar regulation, it just helps so much. So the collagen is another one that I think is a champion for the postpartum season. No, it's absolutely a champion. And the the needed collagen, so a lot of people are wary of collagen because of heavy metals, which they should be because a lot of the companies that are really popular and mainstream are not testing for heavy metals in their collagen, but needed is. And I love that about them. I also just, I know I talk about this all the time, but the fact that you really truly cannot taste it at all boggles my mind I know, um, and makes me so happy. And it's so, it dissolves so much better than the other ones too. It does not clump. It does not taste gamey. It is by far, it's probably my favorite needed product, honestly, of all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I it's, am obsessed. <laughs> it's so good. And I mean, I'm just going to throw another plug, which is their elderberry 
powder, their immune support, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which again is another thing you can take. So we designed so many of the products to be able to be taken either in pregnancy or definitely postpartum. Like the stress support was actually designed specifically for postpartum. Um, and then the elderberry immune support is so great because, you know, you want to protect you and baby when baby's new, especially in cold and flu season, which you deliver babies in. <laughs> All the time. (laughs) So um, that's another really awesome product that we love. So anyways, just as a plug, I just want to say, if you guys want to check out any of the needed products, go to thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER and you can save 20% on your first order. Again, thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER because there's so many awesome products if you are in your pregnancy, if if you're in fertility, pregnancy, postpartum any season for you and your partner and the whole family, um, check them out. But yeah, supplementation is a big part of postpartum because it's in such a time of needing to replete. Mm -hmm. And you are like, they talk about pregnancy eating for two. The time that you are truly eating for two is postpartum. Yep. A hundred percent. It's, Oh wow. That was a really big spit. Holy moly. As you are actively breastfeeding. Wow. Can you even, Wow. Okay. I can't see it, but that's all I'm going to say to this. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about postpartum nutrition before we move on to the the questions that we didn't get to? I don't think so. I mean, I just, I really just can't stress it enough. Oh, actually I do want to say um, on my website, milkmedicine.com, you can download a freebie that's called preparing your your partner for postpartum. And in that little download, it's like a little mini ebook. I have a little section that's about postpartum nutrition and that whole thing, it would just be amazing to send to your partner if you have one, because Mm -hmm. it it will help validate and reinforce these ideas that they're not just coming from you. They're coming from other people and experts in the field. This is not just you wanting a certain way. It is like, this is how we should be recovering. And I, I specifically talk more about the types of foods that should be eaten and how to make it happen. And um, it just might be like a good resource to add in addition to this. Amazing. Okay. So let's do some rapid fire Q&A. This was left over from your postpartum question box on Instagram. So did anyone guess her name in the name suggestion box? Oh, yeah. I had several of those going throughout the pregnancy. Nobody nobody, um, suggested Sunday or guessed Sunday, but several people actually did write in Sunny. Oh, and I would like cute. block those out. I would like erase them from the <laughs> screenshots because I didn't want them to – because that was our top name. And I was trying to like find something that was maybe – that we liked better just to have as mm-hmm. other options, you know? Yeah. But knowing that if we were going to call her Sunday, her main nickname would be Sunny. And so, yeah. I, Sunday is a very odd one. I get it. I, I know. I, I'm aware. But Sunny <laughs> is more common. And so, yeah. anyways, yeah. That's cute. I love it. What would you tell yourself back during the first postpartum advice for others? Oh, during my first postpartum? Gosh. Like, what would you have told yourself? Because it was your first time. Oh, I think I would have. That's so hard. I uh, There's part of me that wants to say, like, I would just give myself a huge hug and be like, this sucks. You're not doing anything wrong. This just is so hard and like try to try to enjoy your baby amongst all of this because I really wasn't I was not I was in such survival mode Mm -hmm. um but what I would also say is get a second opinion if I had my top tip I'd say get a second opinion because the one lactation consultant that we worked with was dead set positive he wasn't tied 
And I, I did eventually get a second opinion. And that's when we decided we found out that he was tied. And then we went ahead with a revision and it was a game changing thing immediately from that night on. Um, but for three weeks, I just thought she told me I had low supply. <laughs> I just didn't make enough milk, which is so funny because if anything, I make too much milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just we're, we're humans. We're flawed. I don't blame her. It's not like it was her fault. It was 2015. The tongue and lip tie thing was just kind of coming on board as being as as prevalent as it is. And But I guess if you are told something that just doesn't line up with your gut or it doesn't make sense or you're still not getting the help that you need, like move on, get a different practitioner, try something different, get a second opinion because it all happened so fast. Like it just happened so quick for me and the, the, the coming back from the nipple damage that I had took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I didn't stop bleeding until he was almost eight weeks old. Oh, geez. That's crazy. Speaking of your son, what did he think of the birth and was he there for any others? You know, I've been trying to get all of the kids to tell me what they thought of the birth and the only <laughs> thing they say is good. <laughs> what do you think? You know, with my daughters too, and they're just like, good, it was good. And I'm like, what does that mean? But then, okay, well, so my son actually, he was present at Sloan's birth. So he was four years, nine months during her birth. And in the video, he's like sucking his thumb and he has his little dog toy thing that we named Doug after our dog. And he, the next day after that birth, I said, what did you think, bud? And he said, good. And then I said, no, tell me like, what did you really think? And he said, it looked like you were going to explode. <laughs> but this time, now that he's seven years, nine months and could totally tell me a novel of what he thinks, he just, I don't know. He just hasn't really said anything. But my three-year-old actually was in here the other day with her baby doll sitting on the bed. And she goes, she goes, Oh, I'm pushing on a baby. And she like brings her baby through her. She's laying on on her back and she brings her baby through her legs. And then she goes, help me, Janice, help me push her through. That's my midwife's name. And what my midwife ended up doing during the birth was I, I got in this position where the baby was going to come out behind me and she helped push the baby through my legs forward so I could grab her and catch her. And oh my, my gosh, three-year-old remembers and took that in and was like playing it. That is how kids process. They wow, play things that's amazing. out. amazing. Yeah, they reenact it. So I, I don't know. I wish I had more feedback to tell you because I want to know. I keep asking them. I'm just like, tell me what it was like for you. And maybe in time it'll come out. I don't know. Yeah, that's so sweet. Ugh. Okay, must have postpartum items. So this says oh, Hakas, or do you want to just say these? Yeah, these are my notes. So oh. I think must have pro, must have postpartum items would be um, the Haka, which is a little soft silicone hand pump, basically. Silverettes, which are these little silver nipple shield cap things that are antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory. They help heal your tissue. They also help protect your nipple from, you know, the the fabric of your bra or your clothes. And when they're so sensitive and they're really damaged, that in and of itself is a game changer. Um, you are, you're meant to kind of like squirt some milk into them and then it holds the milk up against your nipple too, which aids in the healing. But even just contact with the silver helps with the healing as well. I really, really love those. Um, After Ease Tincture by Wish Gardens is something that helps with those uh, cramps, your afterbirth cramps, which get progressively worse in all subsequent postpartums usually. Although I would say mine were far worse with my third birth than my fourth. I don't know why. Um, and they only last a couple days, but they can be really hard. <laughs> um, and then for the baby, a postpartum must have is these gowns. They're like 
just sort of a long sleeve fabric that then is like a long piece down. It doesn't have legs. And then you just Mm -hmm. tie it in a knot at the bottom and it makes for really easy diaper changes. And it's just like a no fuss outfit to put on. I love those. And then I would say like a meal train is a postpartum must have for me. And, and another postpartum must have for me is craniosacral therapy for the baby and IBCLC lactation help. So like, I know those aren't items, but you still have to prioritize that as cost because usually your IBCLC first appointment is going to be about $150. Then there's the follow-up. Same thing with craniosacral. It's probably going to be like 75 to $150 and you might need several of those, but they are the thing that helps the most like the gadgets and the gizmos. I mean, I know some people will have their opinions, but I, those, those are it for me. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So does postpartum hurt? Um, Are there any natural pain meds or any homeopathy that helps? So postpartum shouldn't hurt, but you'll be recovering. So like maybe you had a vaginal tear. I did not. Thank God. Um, Maybe you have a a cesarean. Maybe you have nipple damage. So there's things like that that can happen. Yes. But like just being postpartum in and of itself, no, shouldn't hurt. Um, But you do get kind of achy laying in the bed. And, you know, after birth, you'll kind of feel like a train hit you for a couple of days. So you could, you could do something like ibuprofen if you needed to, um, or obviously you're going to be on higher level pain meds if you've had a cesarean, but you could also do something like the leafy tincture. It's L E E F Y. Again, we'll put it in the show notes and it's a mix of, uh, ginger and turmeric at a very high dose. And those can be anti-inflammatory and that can help with the pain. And then homeopathics, I mean, Arnica is going to be your best friend Mm -hmm. for that. For, you know, ideally you take a dose of Arnica when you first start going into labor and then you take one immediately afterwards. And then, you know, once or twice a day or a couple times a day for the first several days postpartum, it can really help with those aches, pains, that bruising feeling. If you had a cesarean, great. If you have a tear, great. Um, That'd probably be like the one I would say. But then there's more specific homeopathics for different kinds of recommendations. Make sure you are taking your magnesium so that your first couple postpartum poops are nice and soft and not constipated and hard slash you're not skipping days. You don't want to be getting constipated. Yeah. Um, you might not poop that first couple, that first day or two. It can't even maybe go to the first two couple days. Like that would sort of be common, maybe not normal, but it's common. But um yeah, that is something that I think a lot of people forget about. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, how to do postpartum with three other kids? You've kind of alluded to this in the episodes, but is there anything else you want to say about it? Well, I mean, now that I'm out and about and I'm getting more into the back of the game and I can see that my responsibilities are going to be getting going back to normal, I'm going to have to be baby wearing her a lot, which I know is another question too. Um, so baby wearing we could do a whole episode about, but ring slings, soft structured carriers, solly baby wraps, whatever it's going to be for you. It, it is worth the learning curve. A hundred percent. Take it on as you feel like you want to or need to, but man, that is just the best. When you have other kids, like you need your hands, you need, the baby has to be somewhere where they're going to be happy and you can also do life. And so I'm a huge fan. That is that is the way that I will be handling all of this. She will be in the sling like 100% of the time. I love that. And for people who are like really fancy and great and they have a baby with a good latch, you can nurse really easily in the carriers too. I, oh, that's nice. It takes me a little while to learn how to do that, but 
eventually. Oh, I love that. Okay, last three questions. When to have guests come? That's totally dependent on you and what you what works better for you. I mean, some people like and want the guests right away. They and also if the guests are going to be helpful, of course. And then some people want to stay in their little cocoon and they don't they don't really want anybody around. I uh, I can't. I don't think there's any right or wrong way. You just do whatever's going to be helpful for you. And and just hopefully though, these guests are aware that like it would be ideal if they could come and they could bring food when they come or they can be helpful somehow um, so that you're not entertaining them. That is definitely not something you should be doing is right. having people over that are expecting to you to like feed them and stuff like, no, absolutely. Yeah, definitely not. Okay. Is hair loss really normal or is that nutritional deficiency? So postpartum hair loss? I think it's both. There is a level of have hair loss that is physiologically normal because when we're in pregnancy, so there's like three phases of hair growth. There's one where it's like actively growing, one where it's just kind of pause. It's at like a rest. It's like hibernating. And then there's one where it's starting to, it's like falling out. I think that's how it goes. Am I saying that right? Do you remember? I mean, I, I'm not even sure the, about the three phases. I have to look that up. It's like telogen sure. and yeah, I don't know. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've learned about this at some point. But anyway, when you're in pregnancy, it kind of arrests. So those phases stop. And so that's why it seems like you have more hair because you're just not losing it yeah. anymore. So when you're postpartum and then this cycle starts back up, you're going to be losing. It's going to seem like you're losing more hair. Well, and you probably are actually, but it's be just because it's all this other hair that you hadn't lost over the course of that time. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. there is a level of it, which is going to be normal, but then there is certainly things that contribute to too much hair loss, like hypothyroidism, anemia, nutritional deficiency, um, you know, things that would be outside of the realm of normal. So I can't say for any one particular person necessarily, but like, if you think that your level of hair loss is not right, it's too much, then look in, get some blood work, like yeah. look into these reasons because they are real and they are very common postpartum and they are commonly yep. missed. Yep, exactly. And I would say nutritional deficiency is super common postpartum again, which is why we stress uh, good food, nourishment, resting and supplementation. All right. Last question. What do you recommend for baby blues? So we have a whole episode about postpartum depression and anxiety. We talk about the difference with baby blues too. Um, baby blues, like true baby blues, are a temporary thing that will resolve on their own and are are mostly due to hormonal shifts. And there is, you know, postpartum time period for women is the greatest drop in hormones, greatest change in hormones that a woman will ever experience in her life in such a fast, rapid time. So we have to expect that there's going to be emotional consequences to that shift. It's going to not feel good. <laughs> yeah. And then now you have um, lack of sleep as well on there. So that is in and of itself its own thing. Postpartum depression, anxiety, OCD, um, bipolar or psychosis those are like the the postpartum mental health issues that can arise are outside of the realm of that. And we have an episode there to look into more, but again, most of it, if it's not from a physiological cause, like a hypothyroidism, a hyperthyroidism, anemia, a nutritional deficiency, it is something usually that's like lack of support based mm -hmm. or, um, sleep deprivation plus not eating enough, literally just like depletion on yeah. all sorts of levels, but then birth trauma and, um, uh, yeah, birth trauma is a really big one. That's not addressed, unfortunately, because women are just yeah. left and they're kind of like processing now after they're through their initial 
newborn phase and they're just going, what the heck was that? Like, and starting to think back on it and it, and it can definitely contribute to these issues. So again, like we said, finding the root cause of your particular expression of any postpartum mental health issues is going to be the way that we treat it. Because if we don't know why it's happening, we can't really treat the cause. So it's different for every woman. Yeah. And I would say focusing on the foundations, like you said, sleep, getting support, food, tons of support, and then potentially having like a therapist or someone to help you process. And then lastly, I would recommend homeopathy. But again, it depends on your unique expression of that. So maybe finding a homeopathic practitioner or even reading certain blogs about, you know, best remedy for postpartum depression. And you can kind of read about the different ones and find the one that matches you the best. So this was awesome. You've shared so much amazing information as always, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.